Is it baby's big day out where the baby gets accidentally um, kidnapped by criminals and then yeah. it's like climbing around out oh. of windows and stuff? Is it that one? Not accidentally. Yeah, it's it's, jo- it it's Joe Pantaleone and John Mertania and a third guy who didn't go on to do much. <laughs> and they kidnap the baby in order to baby bink in order baby to ransom bink. him uh, back to the family. Yeah, and um, whilst they have him, he crawls out the window and ends up on mm. an adventure on the streets of New York, a zoo, yes. and a building site, and a park. I think that's it. Okay. Well, we can probably cut some footage from that and reuse it. Absolutely. I watched that movie a crazy amount when I was a kid. Yeah, I feel like I watched it several times too. Was it good? Is my question no. for the listener. Was it <laughs> Was it good? I would be Is it still good? flabbergasted if it was good. <laughs> and yeah if that movie's good i will be amazed and yeah sometimes we're like you know what give kids credit sometimes we're like give kids credit they're actually smart and sometimes they're just dumbos who watch baby's big day out on repeat because that's considered <laughs> yeah. good so you know yeah. what honestly you don't actually have to try that hard please take all of my film criticism within the context of this being a guy who watched baby's big day out a whole bunch of times yeah. when he was baselines crazy. baselines really messed up that's how I'm going to be rating it this week, is by comparison. Um, <laughs> how many baby? How many babies? Big days out, is it? <laughs> out of out, out of baby. Five. Out of baby. <laughs> I'm Fat Tony. You're listening to Jen, hey. the film critic. My this name's Jen Bluntel. <laughs> this this ain't over. Uh, you're listening to <laughs> Jen and the film critic. I've said that already. My name's Jen Blundell, and with me, as always, is my film critic Paul Salt. Say hello, film critic. What's a murder? Yep, nailed it. Gosh, we should get voice <laughs> acting jobs. If I could talk like Joe Montagna, I would be doing it all the time. Yeah, same. This is a Screen Mayhem podcast. Lucky, lucky Screen Mayhem. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> representing the brand. And, yeah. uh, and we talk about films. I don't know. I've never introduced the podcast and what the actual conceit is, but Paul watches all the cinema no. releases and then tells me about them. And we rate them. Maybe this oh, is your first one. Yeah, maybe it is your first one. Paul Paul watches all the films and I don't because I don't have enough time or inclination. I'd like to a bit, but it was Care Mode and Mayo. Yeah, was the idea. We're doing Care Mode and Mayo, me is but, the care mode but hot. And Jen is the Mayo. Care Mode and Mayo, but like hot. That's the yeah. conceit. It's like Care Mode and Mayo, yeah. but like make it sexy. Just make it sexy for once. We need sexier versions of things. Yeah. Nobody's thought of this before brand new idea mm, mm, mm. Um, so Paul how many films do we have for us this week usually Paul likes well. to torch me with a billion <laughs> <laughs> we don't have as many we only have 11 films to talk about this week compared to the oh, usual 14 damn. I'll tell you this though usually I have a word document of something like 7,000 notes in order to uh, yes. get for our releases uh, do you want to guess how many we got this time I would say about 12 words, just 12 words. That's very close. You've just written the titles down. That's very close. It's none. I didn't get a chance to do any notes. (laughs) So this will be entirely off the dome, just based on the list of film titles I have in front of me. So, hey, maybe this will be the best one yet, or the worst. Definitely the worst. Paul Paul has been a busy, busy boy. I've been a busy boy. I've had three film festivals this month, 
and also recovery from COVID. So I'm not doing very well. Uh, oh, Paul, COVID's so passe. Stop using this I as an know, excuse. Right? I got it way after it was cool. <laughs> You're so behind the times. Shall we create a jump into our first film? Yeah, go on. Go on, go on, then. on then. No, wait, let's shake up the format. Jump into our third film. No, I'm kidding. First oh, God, film, please. Third? Oh, no, I don't want to first talk about film, the third please. film yet. Oh, no. <laughs> Let's start really with bad. the blockbusters. Yes, we'll start, as we always do, with the big blockbusters of the month. And we've had mm. a few. Um, not as many notable ones as uh, perhaps <laughs> one might expect. Certainly if you were running a podcast and, say, decided that that month you should theme all of the episodes around big releases and realize there were no <laughs> big releases happening in the month you decided to do that. <laughs> that would be upsetting. Nevertheless, that would be That would be your have... other podcast and not this award-winning podcast. Thing. One yeah, good thing, absolutely. yeah. God, I love mm-hmm. that award. Um, you should watch. You yes, should be listening this... to that too, listeners. Just for the record, you absolutely should. No, this the first big movie which just came out last week is The Creator, ah, uh, which has yes, been a long we... time coming, and you have seen many trailers for it ahead of. You've <laughs> seen the same trailer repeatedly, yeah. Yep. Yeah, <laughs> it was nice to put that in the review. Uh, the film itself is directed by Gareth Edwards, and it is the story of a future twenty fifty five where AI has caused chaos. Um, there's something that implies, I think, we're in an alternate timeline in which robots were developed quite early and have been with us for a while because they're very advanced by 2055. Um, and at some point Los Angeles was, uh, destroyed in a nuclear sort of disaster. Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah, as a result, robots were completely banned in the West, but the Asian sort of super state that exists uh, continues to develop robots and has become something of a sort of human robot hybrid state. Um, And there is a pending war going on uh, between the two places. And so we have John David Washington um, playing a sort of undercover soldier whose job it is to eliminate a new weapon that they've developed, which turns out to be a robot child uh, played by Madeline Una Voiles in her debut uh and she is a robot who is able to completely control technology remotely <gasps> so obviously has very big implications she's got bluetooth in this future where everything's a ro- robot she is the first robot to be born with bluetooth Damn. and that's going to cause all sorts of chaos there's not a rumba in the land that's going to be safe <laughs> from her she's like an alexa where you've plugged everything in yeah yeah internet things she controls your fridge now god you fool <laughs> Why did you, fr- why did you Alexa your fridge? <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. So that's pretty much what we're dealing with here. And, you know, as a sci-fi film goes, it's just, I've seen some reviews call this, you know, a very original film and it's, it's struggling a little bit critically. Mm. It very much reminds me of Rogue One, which is the film Gareth Edwards, of course, has done before this. Okay. Um, I think it was the last one he did, in fact. And... It's a similar feeling I had leaving it, which is that I thought aesthetically it is gorgeous. Mm. Um, there's something very exciting about it, and it certainly feels unique in spite of how much it's wearing its influences on its sleeve. But it's just something preventing me from me from connecting to it too emotionally, mm. which isn't necessarily a deal breaker. And in fact, sat there in the IMAX, you know, with John David Washington on the big screen, I was thinking about Tenet. Mm. But there's something, Tenet is something altogether different and has such a unique atmosphere and premise that you kind of get swept away with it and the fact that you're not necessarily emotionally engaging with it is less significant than the fact that you're just loving the yeah. vibes of it 
This has something similar, but there's more of a disconnect. And partly it is that it it's not a terribly unique mm. premise. You know, robots being a persecuted minority in the future, there being a sort of messianic robot figure, um, a soldier paired with a young child. Like, these are all things that we've seen several times before. Yeah. Um, combined with the sort of uh, somewhat interesting anime-infused robotic Vietnam vibe that they're going oh, for. Okay. Yeah, it's very Vietnam mm. feeling, which to be to be fair is something of an obsession with Gareth Edwards because um, he also definitely had that with uh, Rogue One as well, mm. with the sort of palm trees and everything. Cool. So visually gorgeous, striking, beautiful production design, fantastic cinematography, and some really good sound work, mm. some excellent sort of sound effects and kind of... Um, yeah, it's it's a cool future, and cool. when action erupts, it feels exciting. Oh, cool! These quick little exchanges of you know laser, laser fighting and so laser gun, but guns kind of thing. You know, and Do- John David Washington is doing his utmost and is uh, very good, very charming in the role in a in a role where the main character is just a bit bland. He's just a tough guy with a haunted past. Yeah, yeah. But Madeline Univoyles is very good as a little girl. She's extremely good. Very good instincts. Um, very emotive. Yeah, I really like that performance as, yeah, the little girl. She's, yeah, again, very reminiscent of Daphne Keene from Logan, so, mm. but of less anger, I think, which, you know, more understanding, more sadness. Sad child. Sad robot Sad child. Sad robot child. But anyway, the creator is, yeah, a very attractive movie that is telling a very familiar story. Mm. We reviewed iRobot for uh, oh, one yes. good thing. Yeah. Which you watched the first hour of. Yes, I did. Didn't get around to watching the rest, even though I was actually kind of keen to. Yeah, it was, it's, you know, it's a very nostalgic trip. Yeah. This is most definitely a better film than uh, iRobot. And one that's doing much more interesting things for its kind of futuristic society than iRobot did. Um, and it's not conforming quite so closely to a just generic action movie. But it just, it'll be interesting to see the legacy of this because it's already, unfortunately, on track to underperform at the box office. Yeah. Which is a great shame because this is the kind of movie I'd really love to see more of. Mm. You know, $80 million uh, budget, but looks much more expensive than that. I think this looks better than Avatar 2. Yeah. And I think it's a better movie than Avatar 2. So it sucks that that movie made all of the money, Mm. you know, and this one is just not going to. So, yeah, you know, it's it's a good impression. I I think I'd give it three stars at the moment, which may move upwards. There are certain sequences that I would just absolutely love to see again. Okay before it leaves cinema. Very much like Rogue One. Once yeah. again, it's just, there are great redeeming sequences, but overall it's a bit messy and a little unsatisfactory and not as original as you would hope it would be. Mm. Fair enough. I think that's I think that's it. I'd give it a watch. Yeah, give it a watch. You know, it's it's yeah. it's good fun. And if, if you're hurting for something on the big screen, yeah. I think mean, you could do a lot worse. Why not? Speaking of which... <laughs> well the next two aren't my favorites uh, that came out. although this next one actually came along at a point when i needed this was the first film i saw back in cinemas after covid after your covid personal covid after my own personal COVID. <laughs> yeah. um yeah and it is the equalizer three wow okay <laughs> yes what a choice i had <laughs> so the equalizer movies I- i've seen some people compare them to john wick but they are not john wick no there's nowhere near the same level of joy or <laughs> joie de vivre yeah. or just campiness, campiness, yeah. uh, fun, yeah. anything really, imagination, originality. Mm. 
they're quite bleak and i really didn't like the last two they're very much movies for the dads mm. it's very much a case of just because you're old doesn't mean you can't still brutally murder people <laughs> in unpleasant ways especially punk kids <laughs> who as we all know are really causing all of the problems so it, it's similar really it's um what's what's the even the character's name robert mccall um this is a tv show back in the day by the way with edward woodward but yeah now we've got a very dour sort of denzel washington and mm. it's um antoine fuqua uh directing all of them and is back to do that um it's written by Richard Venk, who has written a bunch of these sort of dad action movies, including others for Fuqua. Um, and yeah, it's it's the it's the character that I just said. I've already forgotten his name because it was so boring. <laughs> Robert McCall. He goes to Italy where he takes part in a sort of opening action scene and then gets wounded and ends up taking refuge in a sort of coastal Italian town mm. where everybody's very stereotypically Italian and welcoming. <laughs> and friendly but oh no there's a local mob uh organization that very conveniently seems to be about to do something really horrible and international and only our guy can save them in spite of the somewhat incompetent cop uh dakota fanning um who is about and does some things but not much because she's a girl yeah um don't strain your ovaries love well exactly yeah just wander around and talk about how great our hero is (laughs) It's pretty much all you need to do, which it, it's kind of like reprising her role for Man on Fire, where she was also there with Denzel Washington. <laughs> okay. I mean, in that she got kidnapped. Uh, here she just gets into an explosion pretty much about halfway through, and that's kind of it. Um, it's really got the dad action movie vibes in this one. You've got the small town life, you've got him connecting with the locals, mm. and then suddenly they push further, and you insult him in a bar, and the next thing he firebombs one of the local shops, and then, you know, there's the confrontation scene, and you know, the the way the confrontations work is just the way that every everyone who's ever been treated mean in, in public wishes yeah. this interaction would go. Like, suddenly, for some reason, the guy who's an asshole just allows you to... Um, the guy who's a jerk just allows you to deliver a lengthy monologue. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. About, yeah, you get to say all your cool, you know, badass stuff before you then do a tiny little move, because you're not very athletic and you know it, but you do a tiny thing <laughs> with your hand and it, it you know completely incapacitates them and is you know it's pure escapism yeah a very specific crowd but i'll be lying if i said i didn't enjoy it simply because i was out of my house for the first time <laughs> in three weeks it's set you know on in a little awesome italian coastal town and the the air conditioning in the cinema was very good the sc- image was very big and it's just kind of like a little holiday they needed in that mm. moment so i will say it's better than the last two I think the change of location definitely opens up, opens mm. it up, and just by merit of not being set in a depressing little American town, yeah, as if they're trying to make like Ken Loach <laughs> movie with guns, like the the fact that they're not doing that makes this at least a more pleasant experience. But it's absolutely shallow. <laughs> There's nothing really being said. Um, yeah, it's just absolutely what you'd expect. So I give it two stars. Okay. Yeah. Is one of the first two expendable se- ex- uh, expendables? No, uh, equal. You know, the first equalizer. Yeah. Does it involve a scene in like a warehouse where they're kind of he's doing maybe some traps or something? Yes, yes, traps are a recurring element because he's got some sort of engineering background. Is that? Yeah, I think I might have seen sort of half of one of these films. Well, Remember Denzel. there being like a big yeah warehousey scene where he just kept like doing traps on people. That being I kind of that entertaining. 
I barely remember the first one. I saw the second one more recently. I think yeah. the first one had Chloe Grace Moretz. In it, it did. I just looked it up because I was trying to work out whether yeah. that was. I couldn't tell whether it was the one I'd saw. I don't remember right. any plot. I just remember seeing a bit of no, the finale. Well, the plot is entirely arbitrary. Yeah, it's um, yeah, it's kind of a shame. It's it's tying up a lot of very good people because the other day I had reason to rewatch an absolutely disposable and completely forgettable um denzel washington action movie from the 90s called out running out of time i think it was mm-hmm. where um he's trying to cover he's trying to prevent the police that he works with from figuring out a murder um before he's able to exonerate himself because mm. he's being framed for it and so he's trying to cover his tracks whilst also investigating himself and it's you know it's it's a fun little premise but it's quite a forgettable film but denzel's just so charismatic he really is well he's i keep so good i keep mixing up because that weekend we went to pa- uh, to Marseille together, Paul, and we watched two yeah. 80s oh, yeah. action, cheesy action movies in the same You're weekend. Right. I keep blending the two of them together. So I keep calling them, I keep picturing Denzel Washington and As calling it Backdraft. Yeah, all right. But it's not. Backdraft <laughs> was the one with the two firefighter guy bros yes. in it. And yes, with the Denzel, fire that has a grudge against them. Yes, the fire, the angry fire. And Denzel, <laughs> the fire with a grudge. And Denzel Washington and John Lithgow are in the other one, yes, which I can't remember. Ricochet. Ricochet, thank you. Yeah. Ricochet. But one yeah, he's one. charming as all heck in that. Oh my God, he is. Gorgeous. And I love it when he does. Mm. Like, I'm perfectly on board with him just doing bland action movies, but I need something that has him playing a slightly more interesting character than they give him to be in mm. the Equalizer movies, which is just a sort of stoic badass because that's a pretty boring archetype. Yeah. 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 Ah, well, there we go. Ah. You know what the character is? The character is Liam Neeson from Taken. Yes. Yeah. That feels like the archetype. And that was the the, the first quintessential dad action movie. Mm. No, it wasn't. I just remember Charles Bronson in Deathwish. <laughs> but in terms of the modern era, mm. I think Taken is very much the template for all of this. Yeah. Yeah. And damn it for that. Mm. <laughs> <sighs> oh, God. We don't get to move far for the next one. <laughs> It's expend four balls. Expend four balls. Okay, yeah. I thought, expend I thought four that balls. might be coming up. Ugh. Expendables four. In 2010, <laughs> they announced a movie that was going to have all the big action stars from the 80s and 90s in it. And all of us fans of 80s and 90s action movies got very excited and showed up. And it was really bad. It had nothing <laughs> that appealed to people who were fans of those movies. It was even worse than the sort of generic action movie fair of 2010, which at that point was already absolutely infused with things like CG blood, overcutting, lack of stunts, you know, a tendency to sort of just put everything in the dark so you can't see what's happening. <laughs> just all the laziest parts of Hollywood action cinema, uh, The Expendables, was a near textbook example of. Second one was a bit more fun. Jean-Claude Van Damme's in it and some of the action was a okay. bit more opened up and ambitious. Third one, terrible. Nobody liked it <laughs> uh, because they made it PG thirteen. But it doesn't it hardly seems to matter, seeing as all the blood is very obviously fake anyway, <laughs> and just CGI and soulless and just completely without grit. Mm. <sighs> now we have Expendables four, and it's I think the worst one. <laughs> You've got it. Scott War is the guy doing this, and god what even is the premise to this <laughs> it starts off with an action sequence we've got the new bad guy is um eco ua which is very upsetting because that's the guy from the raid okay and he shows up and he's doing bad things and the team have a grudge against him because of something that happened before and it's all very sim- familiar um 
So are they a team um, of, are they like an A-team? They're a mercenary. They're yeah, a mercenary. they're a mercenary team, okay. the Expendables, uh, led by Sylvester Stallone with Jason Statham as the deputy. Um, and then we have returning people, Dolph Lundgren, who's in all uh-huh. of these and has good hair. <laughs> at the very, is, seems to be all of it. Well, good Randy Couture, who tries to keep his head down and hope that the producers forget they're still paying him. <laughs> Although he has way more to do in this than most of the others, which is something, I guess. <laughs> um, and then they introduce new people, Curtis Fitty St. Jackson, who is uh, replacing, for some reason, their mandated one black man on the crew at a time rule that they've had <laughs> since the first one, where they had Terry Crews, then they had him again for the second one, and then the third one, they replaced him with Wesley Snipes, and now we have Fiddy Cent. Right, okay. Very strange. And then we have Megan Fox as the girl one, and the amount of contempt they have for the female one. And they also have, um, who's the other uh, female uh, agent they have? Let me see. I can't even see her name in the credits. Is it Levy Tran? Yeah, it's Levy Tran, a Vietnamese model, okay. which tells you everything you need to know, really, about yeah. how they're going to treat both. It's Megan Fox and a, another model. Wow. Um, they show up, they wear uh, army clothing that covers very little of their situations. Mm-hmm. Uh, they use ineffectual weapons, including um, Levy Tran uses like a chain thing okay. as her main signature weapon. Mm-hmm. Um, they are absolute liabilities to the team. Mm-hmm. They give them away by talking. They come up with bad plans. Yeah, it's it's ridiculous the extent to which this movie dislikes its female characters. Damn. And early on, the big twist is that the reins of the team get handed to Jason Statham, and this just becomes a Jason Statham film. Most okay. of the Expendables, including Megan Fox, spend the entire film chained up whilst Jason Statham basically does Did the other girl chain them up? <laughs> no, she didn't even. <laughs> oh. She wasn't even a traitor. No, they just capture her and let them all Boo. immediately and put them in jail. And Jason Statham goes around doing his Jason Statham stuff, only it's not totally good. Fight a shark, at least? No, he doesn't fight a shark. The Meg 2 was such a better Jason Statham vehicle. <laughs> it was so much more fun and interesting and just... Well, no fun. That's all it was, really. It wasn't even interesting. It was just fun. And that's all these need to be. Yeah. Why is this so hard? I don't Why? know. I don't know, Paul. Like, you've got these guys. These guys were never... None of these... Well, okay, Tony Jaa is also here, I should say. Tony Jaa and Iko Yue, they were known for their prowess, mm. like Bruce Lee or Jackie sure. Chan. They got big because they were good of at... their physicality. Mm. None of the rest of these guys did. Statham, Stallone... I mean, Statham could fight, yes, or at least look like he could, but he hasn't really been doing it for most of his yeah. career. The reason people keep going to see Jason Statham movies is because of his accent and because he looks funny. He's That's bit, why. He's kind of charming on screen. He's charismatic. He's got a lovely potato face and we want to look at him. Yes, that's exactly it. You want to see his potato face and, and hear him say things accent. like, you muppet. Yeah, exactly. That's <laughs> why he's he's so big. Yeah. And yet this, this just... This series fails to capitalize on the charisma of its stars. Yeah. Like, the most charismatic person in the last one was Wesley Snipes, and they sideline him for most of the movie. It's mm. just in favor of a bunch of uh, kids who they don't even care enough to bring back in this one, including someone from Twilight and the guy who plays the unpleasant, the unlikable character in um, pretty much everything he's been in, including Top Gun Maverick and Ingrid Goes West. Ah. Yeah. Just, don't know. That's just his face. I think he's, <laughs> if you look up a picture of his face, he has an extraordinarily punchable face. <laughs> his Wikipedia picture particularly shows it off. What was his name again? Glenn Powell. You look at Glenn Powell's uh, Wikipedia profile picture. You'll see oh, him. yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember him now. From, uh, <laughs> he's smarmy. He looks smarmy. Yes, he looks smarmy. I'm sure he's lovely, but yeah. he looks smarmy. And hey, it works for him. So 
yeah, that's Expendables 4. It is so contemptuous of the meager crowd that it had. There's also, I should say, there's this dark comedy that feels so lazy, it is straight out of an Uwe Boll film. Mm-hmm. It's like deliberate sort of provocation, kind of just let's be obscene and silly, and it's just, oh god, the the extent to which the events of this film do not matter, the disregard they have for the uh, any sort of franchise building, which feels cynical for me to even say that that's a, a priority it should have, it, it, it almost feels counter-cultural uh, in a way, mm-hmm. like an anti-Marvel, but it's just doing it in the laziest possible way. Yeah, it's a, Again, it feels like a refuge for dads, but it's dads deserve better. <laughs> yeah, they do. Yeah, they, everyone a, deserves better. Everyone deserves Except- better. I guess some people do enjoy this. I don't know. I guess I guess some people do enjoy it's this a, stuff. There was a, okay, there's one scene I can recommend to um our friend. I can out them, it's Bex, you know, <laughs> from my podcast talking about how much they love Jason Statham yeah. and Megan Fox separately. And there is a scene where they have a sexy fight. Oh. And it's fun. Yeah. Watch that in isolation. Oh, and the rest of it don't it, bother. The rest of it do not bother. Yeah. Ugh. Shame. Yeah. Shame. Shame. Shame, shame. Shame. There feels like you could have done something with all of this, but yeah, they're not interested. They showed four movies ago they weren't interested in that, no. so why start True. with the Expendables? Well, exactly, and I probably should have just reviewed this a lot quicker and just said it's like the others. Yeah. It's just the others, guys. Mm-hmm. Let's move on to something new, new. and interesting. Uh, well, relatively interesting. This is um, Dumb Money. Okay. Oh, the... Um... About NFTs or crypto or something? No. Uh, Close. It's about the GameStop shit. GameStop. That was it. I knew you'd mentioned this the other day. GameStop. (laughs) But I'm very interested that you sort of lump these things together because, yes, they're they're very similar. They're similar. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. Yes. Yeah, there's overlap. Yeah, Yeah, there's overlap. There's definite overlap. So this is the true story, Mm -hmm. (laughs) true-ish depiction of the... Dramatization. um, Yes. Well, this was... um, uh, GameStop, the mm, uh, what was it called happen. now? A short. Uh... Yeah, it was. It was Ugh. as my understanding, and I know very little about yeah. it. But my understanding was that it was being short. It was by... people on Reddit talking about stocks, and yeah. you know, on the stocks and shares bits of Reddit. Yes, and then well, there was, there was the a very news... specific group called R slash Wall Street Bets. Yes, Wall Street, but quite a big Reddit, I think. Mm. Reddit sub certainly now. Yeah, um, who you know, shared stocks and shares info. That's the idea, I think, um, yeah. and trading and that. And then they heard that GameStop, a, I think, quite beloved American chain. I imagine it's like yeah, Game or whatever. Yeah, well, it's like Blockbuster. Blockbuster. There's a lot of nostalgia sure. that doesn't necessarily translate into enough money to make it financially viable. Exactly. They heard it was going under, so they all started buying stocks in it. It wasn't just going under, it was being shorted. Sure, so it was its being, value okay. was being driven down by okay. um, hedge funds. Yeah, and, so cynical yeah. people who were pushing it under. Yeah. And so in yeah. return, they were like, right, we can save this chain maybe yeah. and also screw over a load of people who are trying to see this co- company we love go under. So we're going to do the opposite and start buying a load of, of you know, stocky yeah. sharesy stuff. They kind of did the opposite to try and force all these companies to lose a load of money on it, thereby like absolutely spiking the price of yes. GameStop stock uh-huh. temporarily. <laughs> well, yes, this is the thing, is it becomes a big part of the narrative is this idea of holding the line. Yeah. Um it decides the movie decides it needs a main character, and so it picks Keith Gill, mm. who is a YouTuber 
who posted his opinions and videos to Wall Street Bets of Fairman. And that's he's being played by Paul Dano. Okay. Um, in a, a very charming performance. Again, the thing is, I think we'll jump straight to the to the sort of talk about this because yes, it's it's about that. It's about intercutting various people, including the rich people who are losing out, mm. who are played by a sort of host of famous faces. You've got um, Seth Rogen as okay. uh, Gabe Gabe Plotkin. You've got Vincent D'Onofrio, Nick Offerman, Sebastian Stan playing one of the sort of uh, intermediaries. Um, and then you've got these sort of very nice people, nice working class people who represent some of the people who invested in shorting. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, what do you call it? Short squeezing. Where sure. you sort of go against the short. Um, the sort of regular people who invested in GameStop to drive up the price and then try and hold the line in spite of mm. potential manipulation of yes. the... Uh, of the market on yeah. behalf of the hedge fund people. Yeah. So it's a very simple narrative, really, explaining a fair few complex ideas mm. to do with sort of stock shorting and that kind of thing and the idea of going against that. But ultimately, this is an underdog story. Mm. It's the idea that a scrappy bunch of amateurs grouped their dumb money, yeah, as it gets called, together in order to try and participate in the stock market and beat a, a sort of rigged game. Yes. And the sort of shameful actions of the people who sort of pushed it. That narrative is definitely there. But before the film started, there was a government advert warning people to be very careful about uh, buying into stock advice online, yes. particularly when people offer miracle stocks. Mm. I'm glad that was there because this movie does not in any way suggest caution. Sure. It really is just the case that you needed to believe this guy, this guy who was the visionary, mm. you know, the underdog. And it's like, well, he's indistinguishable from half a hundreds, mm. thousands of other YouTube accounts telling you to buy different stocks, some for nefarious reasons. Mm. But he has the narrative superpower of being the main character. Therefore, mm. he's correct um, mm. and entirely pure and beautiful and being played by <laughs> Paul Dano, who is a special spirit. Yes. As we learned in the Fablemans. Um, and so, you know, when he tells everybody, put everything you have into this stock, or, or, you know, when people are deciding, I'm going to put all of my savings into this, and it's like, all we need to do is just not, you know, not waver, not sell, all of this. We know because of the story and because of the sort of narrative trajectory of the story that this is the right thing to do. Mm. Those assurances are not there in real life, and is the same kind of thinking that has people buying into things like cryptocurrencies, sure. um, you know, NFTs. Mm the metaverse, all of this other shady sh- stuff <laughs> that <laughs> is, um, it's hard not to swear with this. <laughs> um, this very shady stuff, which ultimately is not really seeking to disrupt the system or democratize money, as they put it, as much as it is a sort of bigger fool paradox intended to sort of manipulate people and just get them into a system where they can be exploited. Yeah. So, I mean, I have my own cynicism about the stock market playing in here. Sure. Um, and I'm sure some good people did profit through the GameStop thing, which is a good thing. And I'm sure some very bad people did lose money. And that is also always a very good thing. But this narrative is quite straightforward. Okay. And I think alarm bells should ring when uh, Elon Musk shows up as a uh, sort of voice of reason. Oh, okay. <laughs> Actual yeah. Elon Musk shows up. But to be fair, AOC does as well. So, yeah actual footage of AOC presumably from the court uh, uh, sort of thing that did go out of this so you know there's a bit of balance there but no it's it's funny enough it's a nice story but maybe it's too soon to be telling this story sure um 
you know, in particular, all of the people buying into the stock use the expression to the moon. And, mm. you know, we know who else talks about going to the moon but, is the crypto yeah. bros. Yeah, exactly. Know, so. Holding the line and never yeah. selling because it was it's one of it's kind of similar to crypto, certainly at the beginning, not mm. been for a long time. But I think there is was an honest sent a lot of people honestly wanting to shake things up and you know sure. disrupt the system a system that is even with you know the average, oh, yeah. anyone can buy stocks and shares it's still rigged against you like of course it's still rigged against you and people like elon can manipulate stocks and shares to their will because they're rich and have inv- anyway yeah people some people genuinely wanted to change shake things up and then a lot of people realized it was a bit of a gravy train and if they could convince other people to, it became a pyramid scheme and then of course yeah. it crashed Partly because it was always going to, and partly because didn't they stop? They locked down a load of trading sites so average, so people yeah. couldn't buy it anymore. Like oh, of um, of GameStop, yeah, yeah. So people could stop buying it because they were me- they were genuinely messing up a lot of rich people's money, and yeah. so they were like, well, so Robin Hood in particular, Robin yeah. Hood Inc. Is Robin the Hood big one. trading, yeah. They stopped yeah. people buying it, and they were like, well, either we're freely allowed to buy this because yeah. uh, the markets can, you know, you allow the markets to run themselves, or yeah you know you're yeah. regulating stuff but you should also be regulating but who you know you who you're accountable to and yeah. why is it only when your average joe starts so like i can i can see i can see it's the complex. noble intent behind some of it but yeah. also definitely should come with a one because people lost money on GameStop. oh god yeah lots of people saw this was happening and like yes you could be like well they got greedy and didn't think about it but you know yeah there's not a lot of education about it's it's easy to get caught up in that and there's it's hard to be you know it's easy to just drop all your money into a thing there's a lot of people out there manipulating people to do that so essentially if anyone tells you to buy a stock just assume they already own some of it and want you to help them push up the price that's my psa if anyone on youtube or tiktok or whatever is saying hey buy this stock it's because they already have that stock and they want you to buy it too so they get more money i think my attitude towards the stock market is just always don't imagine it as the shortcut to success it's not think of it like gambling it is gambling. gambling And never invest slash gamble anything that you wouldn't be happy to lose. Yeah, exactly. As soon as you invest something, think to yourself, right, that's gone. Yeah. And then you can be pleasantly surprised. If yeah, it comes exactly. Back to you. They put those yeah. things on the things being like prices can go up or down and you're like, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. No, they genuinely can't. It's a stock market. It is gambling. No one can tell you yeah. what's going to happen for sure. You never know what's going to go on with a company, really. And yeah, to be honest, even uh, even professionals who get paid millions of pounds a year don't necessarily just output. Yeah. output they don't on average, outperform just a regular tracker fund that just tracks yeah. the stocks of the top 100 companies in a country. <clears throat> yeah. Your, av- your, your, your professional getting paid millions isn't doesn't get it any better than you do. Yeah. So They well, pretend they do, but they don't really. No one no one's can see the future. Yeah. So this, uh, I think the film ultimately feels a bit too Oh, simplistic. yeah, films. We're talking about films, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a bit, I mean, this is good advice, and this is the sort of thing that does not come out of the movie because yeah. ultimately if you see the movie... What you'll come out wanting to do is buy stocks in GameStop because yeah. it's oh. still running. The end of the movie, throughout the movie, we see these captions that sort of say what the net worth of everyone is. Mm. And you see that the people who had faith, who held the line, mm. their value has gone up. You know, one person who chickened out when the stock crashed, she's, you know, down and, you know, all the rest of it. And it's a big morality story where, the you know, the, the people who need to lose, lose and the people who need to win, win, which, you know. It makes you feel good, but it's just this is a very 
this is an unusual situation and far too soon to be enforcing this kind of narrative onto these this particular set of events yeah i'm not sure i think people who bought it when it was worthless and then the price got driven up and it's since then it's been going back down they might be up but that's because they that's bought the thing it of crypto isn't it as well it's, it's this idea of if you're hearing about it it's too late yeah you know. kind of crypto's extra weird though because it's a currency yeah. and fundamentally is not functioning like a currency at least with well, a no, company it's... you can be like well there's still a company a there that's like thing. selling and buying you know selling services yeah. or products like and still ge- theoretically generating revenue yeah but the, crypto the is literally need, doing nothing <laughs> literally the only fi- the only feature from currency that you need is consistency and stability and you yeah can't, yeah the one thing the most the one thing that crypto does most certainly doesn't have not the one thing lots of the things it doesn't have but it's anyway. fundamentally not a good currency so <laughs> it's a terrible currency so um but yes, it's a pyramid this, scheme, guys. It's a pyramid, pyramid scheme. <laughs> Watch out for them. Don't get involved. And it's, yeah, this film, it's interesting because it's Greg Gillespie who also did I, Tonya and sort of turned, yeah, okay. you know, who, which offered a very nuanced version of events. You know, it kept showing alternate versions. It kept having characters break the first wall, mm. third wall, sorry, in order to say mm-hmm. things like, this is what I think happened or this is what mm. he says or I never did this kind of thing. And it's and then uh, in between I, Tonya and this, he also directed Cru- Cruella, Interestingly, oh, okay. so he's an interesting trajectory that he's got going. This feels like a um, uh, the Big Short was it? The um, oh yes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, this feels like the Big Short in its style. It just is way less confident in mm. what it actually is trying to say, and doesn't have as unique a kind of voice to it. And it doesn't have that sort of moral mm. outrage either. Yeah, the Big Short's um, good, and it's based on a good book as well. Oh, and there is outrage there, and the you know there's yeah. no magical happy ending because ultimately no. it's like regulation is still bad and, yes but here's how the scummy guys got away with it <laughs> yeah and then oh, it's, so yeah, it's really good it's good, good and the, bu- well the book paced. is also great and it'll teach yeah. you a lot about stocks and shares and how much stuff yeah. is just and how that whole financial the 2008 crash came about yeah yeah and great. i think the benefit of hindsight helps with that to sort of really see the full picture mm-hmm. anyway this is fun but don't use it to get life advice <laughs> okay how many yeah. stars how many babies out of how many babies? I'm going to give it two babies. Two babies. Yeah. Two babies. Yeah, it deserves. You know what? It's just a film. It's three. But I mm. feel like with all of the real world context around it, I have to drive it down to a two. That's fair. I think that's okay. I think yeah. that's how you, sh- you f- things get rated in context. So they have to. Yeah, that's fine. I would think if I watched this, I think I would come away feeling annoyed if it didn't get yeah. into the subtleties of the whole situation. That's exactly what you know. Any. Right. Oh, we talked about stocks and shares for a while there in the middle. We did. It was fun. <laughs> have some opinions. <laughs> Let's and see. I, and I have some. Like, I'm not yeah. opposed to getting them entirely. Just, just you know it's gambling, right? Just yeah. so you know it's gambling. Don't put the farm on it. No. <laughs> Certainly not into one, at the very least. Not everything into Diversify one. Diversify your portfolio, everyone. It's Diversify the main theme Diversify your portfolio. this episode of Jen and the Film Critic. <laughs> oh, gosh. We're turning to a finance podcast. <laughs> It was always going to happen. Uh, we've got to move into a horror kind of area. Oh, good. There's always a little horror bit of the podcast. There's always a little horror Paul. bit, and we're approaching the spookiest month. We're in it, Paul. <gasps> we're the in the spookiest of, month. It's the no! third of October. Oh, we've got to get this episode out. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, I luckily... saw someone down my street has Halloween decorations up already. They clearly <laughs> are, like, super into October. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, October's my favourite month. I just hate the fact that it's so close to January. <laughs> and it marks the uh, the road to January. 
which is my favorite time of year, immediately followed by my least favorite. Yeah. Fair. Anywho, mm. we have got a road, uh, a path that leads us from big blockbusters to horror movies mm-hmm. because inexplicably Kenneth Branagh has made another Poirot film and oh, it's kind yes. of a horror movie. Okay. It's a haunting in Venice. Okay. Based on Agatha Christie's uh, novel Halloween Party, which is a much better title. <laughs> Big spooky it, Halloween party. Is it? <laughs> <laughs> um, an unusual move. Yeah. I don't know. There must be other well-known Poirot adventures beside Murder on the Orient Express. Evil Under the Sun, I feel like, has a little more recognition. But maybe he does want to try and break away from the original 1970s run of Poirot films. because Wait, Who's and then there was none? No, that's not Poirot. Was I don't think that's any of the biggins. It's just just a person. It's a standalone. Oh, okay, fine. Yeah. Is it a Christie book? Yeah, it is a Christie. Okay, that's yeah. one. Okay, she didn't always put um, yeah, Poirot or Marple in there. There's a couple of Poirot or Marps. Was it the Mousetrap? That doesn't have either the oh, biggies. Okay. Yeah. Anywho, this is Poirot who has retired and has been living in Venice. Um, where, yeah, he's uh, accosted by people every day hoping to solve cases, but he has a big (laughs) burly bodyguard who keeps them all away. He is finally convinced to come and actually leave the house and uh, attend something by a mystery writer friend of of his, Mm. who convinces him to come to a Halloween party because there is a medium, played by Michelle Yeoh, who is going to visit a uh, grieving mother, uh, Kelly Riley, in order to try and channel her dead daughter. Mm. Uh, and there's a bunch of other suspects around as you expect uh, but then suddenly somebody shows up dead and it's ah. up to Praro to try and figure out what happened no one shall leave this place until I find out if the living are being hunted by the dead that's John Malkovich's Poirot <laughs> <laughs> he did do a pro. He, he did, did the ABC yeah, murders. He, did. Very good. he was very good. I enjoyed him very he much was. in it. But that was very much John Malkovich's Poirot. <laughs> I can't do Brunard. I've not got the tash. So <laughs> you not got the scar to go under the tash, <laughs> which thankfully does not get mentioned. Oh, I've got to say, I enjoyed this one. Oh, good. I did. It's that the whole the whole thing is set within this sort of palatial but very segregated kind of cut off twisty corridor kind of house fun um which is in the middle of venice but is severed from the surrounding neighborhood by a terrible storm so they're stuck inside this Mm. house in the middle of venice and it's very atmospheric a lot of it i think comes from the music which is by um hilda uh gonadotti uh well known for her menacing and unsettling Mm -hmm. scores and there's something very not traditionally halloween spooky about this but actually sort of tipping into the genuinely uncanny about it so that it is just a little bit spooky and you know it's Poirot working you know the usual tricks so you've got I I assume quite a faithful adaptation of the original uh, story because it is very Christy (laughs) in terms of just a bunch of interlocking strangers who all have their hidden motives that get exposed yeah you know Branagh is still having fun in this role Um, the comedy is still really tonally out of nowhere (laughs) when it happens um but yeah, I didn't guess the twist. It was satisfying when it got here. It's got lots of twists and turns. It's just fun. It's everything that you want a Prower film to be, which is just something diverting to have on Christmas Day when you've got the family around. Yeah. Yeah. And everyone can just sort of bond over a good murder mystery. 
It's very functional in that sense, but it just has a little something extra just to make it just a little bit... Yeah, but to make its genre credentials actually shine through. It does have cool. some affectingly sort of creepy moments, which feel suitable enough once you know the full story as to okay. what's happening. You know, at the Halloween party. <laughs> so, yeah, I'd give it, I think I'd give it four stars. It's Great. such a step up from Death on the Nile. That, yeah. <laughs> which is a very irritating, sort of showy adaptation with absolutely no substance. Yeah. Um, there's more to that here. And it, it gets back to the sort of essentials of Poirot, which is not, you know, big dramatic location work that you do using green screen, mm. um, but is instead sort of just very character driven murder mysteries. Nice. Yeah. Great. Yeah. I'm happy for you. Uh, I've got another spooky film for you <gasps> The Nun 2. The two. <gasps> Chapter 2. The nunnering. The nunnering. Yes, this is the latest installment into the Conjuring universe, the last of which I think was the third Conjuring film, which I reviewed poorly. The Devil Made Me Do It, as it was called. A movie that was, yeah, very... It's a stupid name. It's a stupid name, and it was not... It was a film that had an interesting premise, but decided not to do that and instead to do just standard Conjuring stuff. Sure. This... Picks up after the last nun movie, in which uh, Sister Irene, played by Tessa Farmiga, mm-hmm. uh, sister of Vera, um, is su- having survived her encounter with the demon nun Valak, um, is now living in a another a, a different sort of uh, monastery. Nunnery. Yeah, a nunnery. He's living in a nunnery. Mm. Uh, meanwhile, Frenchie, the guy who survived the previous encounter with her, played by Jonas Bloquette, um, is working in a little school where the kids are encountering some spooky things and it soon becomes obvious that there's a nun out there. There's a nun after him. Evil nun. <laughs> Actually, it becomes Evil obvious nun. that Frenchie has been possessed by the titular nun and that it is using him to travel around the country in search of an artifact, the Eyes of St. Lucy. <laughs> Evil nun. Evil She's nun. She's just an evil nun. <laughs> oh, oh, what can be done? What can about be that done? evil nun? Da, da, oh. da, 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 da. <laughs> Coming to ABC. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think this was an improvement on the previous nun movie, which isn't saying much because the previous nun movie was definitely the weakest conjuring film and mm. a fairly inadequately made horror film that f- focused on sort of action over actual scares. This movie has some very original ideas for jump scares, commits to its spooky atmosphere. I still must say, I don't think the nun herself is particularly frightening, and they've never really tapped into the full potential of what the idea of a demon nun represents. Like, what is the societal hang-up you're playing on there? Mm. What is the significance? What do nuns mean to people? Because they do quite a good job. These movies have always felt relatively pro-Catholic. Mm. Or at the very least willing to use Catholic iconography and present a world in which that iconography is correct, which is okay. something that most exorcism movies do, as we discussed with yes. uh, oh, the Russell Crowe one. The Pope's exorcist. Mm. Um, yeah, Catholicism is right, and the demons <laughs> are correct, and the saints all lived, and their you know, various appendices are available as uh, appendages, I should say, mm. are available as uh, little knickknacks that might cause evil. Um 
but yeah, there are some frightening sequences in this, um, and although it's not doing too much of its premise, it is certainly more effective than the previous one, and pro- more effective than the last Conjuring movie. Okay. And less reliant on extremely cheap jump scares, which I appreciate. <laughs> so, yeah, I think it's I think it's three stars. It's vaguely trending positive, but it's certainly nothing terribly impressive. Fair enough. I never three want to watch it. Three stars minus. That's fair. <laughs> three stars minus. Three <laughs> stars minus half a baby. <laughs> the half baby makes all the difference though. a half baby really is the difference <laughs> there's a better horror film that came out this month though Oh yeah, one that was massively shafted in its release oh no it was dropped out there with barely any any fanfare and I think it's already gone and it's unfortunate because it is Cobweb okay never heard of it yet nope this is a uh, relative unknown uh, from a director who's not a big name and you know, it's a Lionsgate studio, but it's, yeah, it's a, a fairly quiet little release. I think the biggest name associated with it is the dad, Anthony Starr, who is uh, getting somewhat big these days because of The Boys. Oh, okay. Where he plays the main dude. You may have seen his ah, face on a yeah. poster. Otherwise, this is mostly unknown, so far as I can tell. It's the story of a young boy, a very shy boy, who lives in this um, big, scary house uh, with his parents um, who have something odd about them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there is appears to be something in the walls. Oh, Meanwhile, in the walls? He's, being, he's being bullied at school, and he's starting to manifest some unusual behaviour as he sort of tries to make, navigate his very scary and upsetting life. <laughs> it's school's a kind hard. Of, school's hard, especially when you've got a spooky person in the wall. It's a nun. It's a nun. It's a oh. nun in the bloody wall. And Evil it's, nun. She oh. is just an evil nun <laughs> hiding in your walls. Brick oh, her up. <laughs> Brick her up, folks. It's it's a hyper real movie. It has this kind of production design that's very Tim Burton esque. Okay. And a sort of super reality kind of thing sure. that's going on. You've got a great teacher character, uh, played by Cleopatra Coleman, mm. um, who's the sort of person who's looking out for uh the kid, who is Woody Norman, I think. Yeah, Woody Norman is the kid. Um, (coughs) And he's wonderful. It's a very good child actor performer. Mm. He's very affecting and um, you feel a lot of uh, concern for him and his well-being as he lives in this spooky house with its big backyard full of pumpkins. It's it's got a sort of Roald Dahl style children's horror story to it, but it is nevertheless, uh, I I think must be quite highly rated in terms of like gore because it gets quite gnarly in the third Mm. act. The third act is maybe a bit too big. It okay. kind of explodes and it, it, it becomes this big kind of ridiculous thing, which is a shame because what I was really enjoying was the build-up, the very sinister moments, the way it handles frightening sequences. Um, yeah, it's a very effective horror movie that has things that are reminiscent of like the Babadook, for example. Okay. Thematically, I don't think it's tying into all that much. There's no big idea, but it's it, it's very good at sort of invoking the idea of childhood fears, I mm. think. Uh, in a way that is very, you know, it, it's not like an Ari Aster film where it's got this kind of ver- uh, veracity to it mm. that makes the scares feel a bit more grounded. I say, considering the last Ari Aster film was bloody, <laughs> uh, Bo is Afraid. Yeah. Uh, most far removed reality <laughs> thing that you could find. But it has got the hereditary feel, I should say. It's more sure. stylized than that. And yeah, it's just, it, it's it's good fun and a very spooky movie. I think it would be a, an appropriate sort of Halloween film okay. uh, that was mysteriously released in September. Well, with very little fanfare. Well, it's a shame. 
How many stars, Paul? How, How many, many stars? I think I'd give it four babies. Great. Yeah, great. Hmm. Lovely. Four babies for another spooky time. Yeah, for a spooky time and a very effective horror film. Oh, very good. Right. I shall not be watching it. That's fair. So, <laughs> one of the things I did during uh, this month was I went to the BFI IMAX, who were very interestingly screening the first slam dunk. Is that like Space Jam? It is, except without the space, but plenty of jam. Mm. It is a basketball movie, a basketball anime. Oh, yes. Based on a manga series called Slam Dunk. It's it, it's a big animated movie about a single basketball game, really. Ah. You've got uh, a main character, Ryota, uh, Ryota Miyagi, who is um, the point guard, apparently, of the team. And yeah, he is just playing this single game, the whole movie, this um, two-hour movie. is just a single game. But every so often during the game, we sort of freeze frame or we cut back and we find out about the backstory. Mm. It's very much structured like a manga. Sure. You can totally tell, okay, now we're in the book that explores this character. Sure. But, oh my god, it's it's just a joy. In particular, at the BFI Max on the massive screen, it mm. was just delightful. It was huge. It's very stylistic. It's a hand-drawn 2D animation, but with some, you know, 3D help. Mm. is just stunning. There are moments oh. where you forget, <coughs> perhaps, to be impressed by what you're seeing. Because... It's just so flawless. Like the, it's this completely. It, it shifts from this completely realistic, sort of believable basketball environment to this incredibly stylized form of movement in order to create these dynamic sequences with just stunning music. Nice. And just everything about it is exhilarating, and then genuinely affecting when it cuts back to explore each of the sort of basketballmen's uh, past and um, mm. you know previous experience in a way that doesn't feel contrived or. Mm, forced yeah not too forced it's it's not you know each one representing a different aspect sure. of the potential teenage experience it deals with grief really well it's it builds up the emotion well which and uses it to sort of fuel the action um and does a lot to characterize almost the entire team i will say there are two that i can't quite pick out from each other but for everyone else yeah it does a good job of giving them personalities that translate Actor. to the way they play mm. the game Okay. In particular, the sort of oddball, this one with red hair, who's the kind of uh, the joker of the one. team. The kooky mm-hmm. one, yeah. And yeah. You see, it's an anime, so you pretty much know what you're getting. There's some definite genre tropes in place here. Oh, but yeah. seeing it on this scale and with this level yeah. of proficiency was just wonderful. Oh, great. Very good. <laughs> mm. Very good stuff. Well, I don't really know how to translate that into the how next one because. How many babies, please? Oh, how many babies, please? Four. Four babies. Four babies. Great. Loved yeah, it. Thank you for the watch. Why not? Yeah, it's it's really good fun. Yeah. <laughs> and it was just, it was really nice thematically to just watch a great big movie about basketball and capturing yeah. an actual like teenage experience yeah. on the big screen. Not something fun. you get to see very often anymore. And mm. It's a shame. I, I agree. There should be another Space Jam remake, Paul. There definitely should be. And this time actually make it about basketball. <laughs> get those monsters and Looney Tunes out of there, folks. <laughs> We don't need it. It's a crutch. Yeah. <laughs> I just want to see a film about Michael... Michael Jordan. B. Jordan. Michael B. Jordan. Or Jordan Jordan. What was his name in the first one? Michael Jordan. Yeah, just regular Michael Jordan. His, his actual name, yeah, Michael yeah. Jordan. 
Anyway, speaking of experiences that don't often get captured on screen, we have Scrapper. Mm-hmm. A little British film. Oh. Yeah. Oh. Um, it's a movie about a little girl played by Harris... Uh, no, played by Lola Campbell. Mm-hmm. Um, who's sort of growing up in East London somewhere in some sort of estate kind of place. Um, and she is living alone since her mother died. Oh. Um, and she's living seemingly by selling bits of bikes that she's stealing with her best friend. Um, there's a bit of a sort of um, Dickensian thing going on there <laughs> with her being this sort of very charming sort of chancer character who's good at, you know, getting out of trouble uh, with her sort of, yeah. you know, talking her way out of trouble. What sort of age is she? Uh, 12. Wow. Okay. Then, yeah, her father, her biological father shows up, Jason, played by Harris Dickinson, mm-hmm. uh, who people may know from Triangle of Sadness, where he played the lead. And he shows up in order to try and fit back into her life. But she's not very amenable to that. And he's going to have to try and overcome her sort of streetwise ways in order to, um, mm. yeah, actually try and make a connection with his daughter. And is that something he's even hoping to do anyway? So, and all the while we're getting this kind of magical realism, kind of fantasy sequences, you okay. know, imaginings from the daughter. And it's got this very sort of child perspective kind of thing going on. Mm. So... Yeah, it's a movie that has a tremendous amount of heart to it. It's a wonderful two-hander, you know, with these two performances. They have great chemistry together, you know, as just two people who are extremely similar to each other and are just trying to figure out how to work together, Mm. how to fit in to each other's lives and sort of butting heads doing so. Um, Yeah, it's fabulous performances, a uh, very cute kind of world. Um, it's not Rye Lane in as much as it's not this sort of beautiful <laughs> evocation yeah. of East London. It still feels fairly grim and is a little depressing yeah. in places, but it f- remembers to put the personality into it and the sort okay. of life of its subjects. Um, and it never looks down on them. So, cool. Yeah. Sounds, I mean, yeah, yeah, sounds nice. Stuff. It is nice. It's nice. And even though it is still very London-based... Mm. It um, nevertheless, you know, feels like a perspective you don't necessarily get to see. It's Charlotte Regan is the director who, okay. so far as I can see, this is her first feature. But yeah, um, she is very assured here. She has a very immediate style that oh. feels, yeah, unaffected and very involving. Cool. So yeah, scrap. interesting. I would recommend it. Mm. How many babies? How many babies? I think I'm going to give it four. Four babies? Okay, cool. Mm, well. I'm just trying to think of... Well, I, I don't know. I, uh, you Almost unfairly, it kind of suggests a comparison to After Sun, what with it being a British sort sure. of father-daughter thing, and you have to hold five stars back for something like that where it just feels mm. entirely new, like it's breaking new ground and just yeah. blowing you away. You know, this film's very sweet, and I enjoyed it. Speaking of Britain, though, mm-hmm. what kind of movies don't get set in London? Movies directed by Ken Loach. <laughs> it's the old oak okay so we are in a little mining community um somewhere in the northeast that is still suffering from the consequences of the closure of the mines back in the 80s <sighs> there's never been a recovery and now they've got the immigrants moving in oh no and the locals aren't taking to it very well uh with the exception of pub landlord tj ballantyne Uh, played by Dave Turner, who is attempting to support the local Syrians as best he can, um, whilst also keeping the peace with 
the usual gang of racists that are about. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it's Ken Loach. To some extent, that is a genre. Yeah, you know, it you is. kind of sad it, especially... British film about sad British topics. <sighs> yes, especially if you've seen the last two. I haven't seen particular. any. Poor. You haven't seen any. Well, I do recommend things like Cares. <laughs> the problem is, cinematically, it very much is the equivalent of eating your greens. Eating your greens. It is. It, it, <laughs> it feels like something that you don't exactly spring into. You know, this is going to yeah. be, you know, it's going to be a heavy dose of reality. You know that you're pretty much going to be on board with it. Yeah. You know that it is the right sort of thing, but it also feels a little like preaching to the choir. Mm. You know, we're not the ones who need to be convinced by this, and Suella Braveman's not going to see it. No. You know. And even if she did, she you could you could pin her eyes open Clockwork Orange style and force her to watch it, and she'd still come out of it thinking that, yeah. We're going to get tsunamied with immigrants and therefore yeah. she should run the whole country. Yeah, absolutely. It's the, you know, they're trying now, you know, with these renewed attacks on immigrants and trans people to sort of desperately cling on to power by invoking the sort of worst reactionary in- instincts that people have. Yeah. It's uh, pretty despicable. And but so this is a very Fortunately, they're also sti- still being very blatantly incompetent as well. Oh, so. I hope it's enough, Jen. I hope that... It's enough to overcome. Because the thing is, you watch something like The Old Oak, and you do... Uh, I should talk more specifically about it, because it's... Yeah, go on, describe the, the film. Thing about Ken... We've very off topic today, but... <laughs> we have done. The thing about a Ken Loach film mm. is that you do... It is... They are funny, and they're endearing, okay. and they're incredibly sweet. Mm. Like, there are moments in there of just simple humanity shown between characters, and you know that ultimately it's going to end on a note of hope. Because okay. that's what he does, Okay, you know? he does, right. He will end on a note of hope, but ultimately the big societal injustice is not going to be there. I will say that in terms of society, it's very interesting that the shortcomings of the state are very much determined by its absence. Mm. All of the characters talk about, you know, there's there's a very sort of, another thing is that characters in this can be kind of mouthpieces. People just kind of say what they're thinking pretty much all of the time. Um. And, you know, they do identify that their problems are economic. The problem mm. is that they were left behind by the Tories and never, never mm. embraced back into the rest of the country. And at various points, Ballantyne uh, says things like, we are one of the richest countries in the world, this kind of thing. And it's it becomes very obvious that ultimately these people are being encouraged to turn on each other mm-hmm. instead of, you know, demanding any kind of systemic change. And it does make you reflect on the fact, because one of the things that they do is the old oak returns uh, refers incidentally to a pub mm. that he manages. Uh, a pub that, you know, he barely keeps going, but becomes a community space where various sort of um, white and Syrian and, you know, otherwise mm. locals come together in order to start a sort of food club because, you know, families that eat together get to stay together. Sure. So they all come together in order to eat together in order to try and help maintain the peace. Mm-hmm. And that does make you reflect on the fact that one of the crueler things that David Cameron's uh, governments did, many things mm-hmm. that, that government did, both of them, um, was this sort of big community idea. Mm. Because what that did is sort of appropriate, you know, the the only thing the community has, which is the ability to sort of band together against the Tories and try and make it part of its own policy. Yeah. It's this idea of, hey, these desperate people banding together and sharing what little food they have and what little resources they have, that's part of our idea. That's part yeah. of what will make Britain work again. It's not obvious <laughs> evidence of our system failing people. We're just, it's, it's a just good thing. It's just tough love on you guys so you actually get on with uh, each other. you just got to get up off your back. services, we'll force you sp- to spend time together and therefore you'll love yeah. each other. If there's That'll no public great. services, you'll have to go out and work and get insurance and stuff. 
Yeah. And look after each other because we don't want to do it. And you're welcome. It, all of that is in there and it's 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 very affecting. It is a movie that will get you angry. In particular, a little slightly irrelevant uh, pot shot at sort of weapon dogs that people own. There's a, a, a subplot okay. you know, involving this, which again, very timely considering these yeah. events. Um, of you know these two local teens owning these horrible dogs and it sort of mm. comes to a sad end you know a very devastating sort of thing and it's just a little side swipe at you know the yeah. lack of regulation over these dogs um, which I guess you could kind of tie into the idea of unregulated anger just not stepping in but it's a little bit tenuous um, mm. I, I, I enjoyed the film and it certainly got a reaction from the crowd you know it had mm. You know what? It had all the same sort of ahs and ums throughout the whole thing. And then you leave, and I saw this at the BFI South Bank, and the crowd of sort of middle-class Guardian readers, which is what <laughs> Ken Loach tends to get accused of being, sort mm. of coming out saying, oh, sad, wasn't it? Oh, mm. Oh. Mm. oh dear. Oh. And that's the thing. This sort of thing can feel a bit anthropological. Mm. Even though it's clear that Loach does have a fair amount of love for his subjects, there can be a slight feeling of, Oh dear, isn't that terrible? I'd hate to live up north. <laughs> yeah. And when there's not much in the way of counter-programming to challenge that, mm. you know, when I was at Widescreen Weekend, I saw Billy Liar. Mm. Absolutely fabulous British film from 1962, I want to say, maybe the 50s, um, set in Bradford. Mm. About a young man who doesn't want to live in Bradford, and it does have a fairly bleak view of Bradford. You've still got bomb damage. Yeah, rough and, rough you know, in the 60s, yeah. Yeah, but you've still got all of that, but the young man living in it dreams of better, you know, mm. and he dreams of being the uh, the premiere of his own fictional nation in his head, mm. a place called Ambrosia. And mm. he just keeps having these sort of fantasy sequences and he dreams of getting away, but he's actually quite loath to do so and is trapped mm. in this sort of cycle. And it's just so, even though it's definitely speaking towards a bleak economic reality, it's so full of wonder and magic and romance mm. and sex and humor and charm. And you do just think, where's that though? Yeah. Where's that in modern Britain? Just something that young people might actually be able to watch and see themselves in. And unfortunately, I think it's it's on television, right? It's sex mm. education. And, yeah, probably. You know, formerly skins and stuff mm. like that. It's, you know, I it's guess. maybe. I've maybe not watched Hollyoaks. either. So I haven't I'm, watched. No, I'm speculating here. I never <laughs> felt the need to. But nevertheless, I think young people being able to see themselves in cinema, or just British people in general, or non London people being able to see themselves in cinema is important. I think that's mm. part of keeping a vibrant film culture alive. And it's just a bit of a shame that the only thing we can regularly make outside of London are these very bleak kind of documentary drama films about how miserable it is because of the Tories. Mm. Which is true. Yeah. <laughs> the to- yeah. and, you know, it's bleak everywhere because of the Tories. But yeah. nevertheless, it's just, it is like eating your greens. Yeah. But you know what? Mm-hmm. Greens are tastier than perhaps you think. Slather them in butter. Slather them in butter. Jen's which is hot tip. Stick butter on it. <laughs> It'll taste good. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's a good film. It's just okay. a bit of a hard watch. And mm-hmm. I feel like we're getting a bit too much of that. Anyway, um, this is likely to be Loach's last film, according to him. And if okay. so, it does feel like a good summation of the mm. overall thing that he's been trying to do since the 60s. Wow. You know, Dang. since that first um, first film, Poor Cow. It's a long time. It's a long time. And uh, it feels like a good sort of rounding off, you know, taking on 
perhaps the most pertinent issue facing stability in this country, or when I say stability, I mean um, community mm. sort of relationship Cohesion. is yeah. the sort of, yeah, is the sort of way in which the Tories are able to weaponize bigotry and sort of mm. turn people turn the people who most desperately need help against each other, fighting Make- over scraps. <laughs> It's about making people think that the problem isn't the people above them, it's the people below them. <laughs> There's an exact line in there. There's a line where it's like, it's very easy to scapegoat when things are rough, isn't it? And people never look up to yeah, scapegoat exactly. and down. Yeah, and yeah. they're encouraged to. So that's yeah. that's exactly what they're trying to do. Oh, I, you know what? I, I want to put, uh, pick out a couple of performances. Dave Turner is fantastic as the pub landlord. Mm. You know, and Elba Mari uh, plays Yara, the sort of main uh, immigrant uh, woman that he then bonds okay. with um yeah who's experiencing her own issues you know her family back in syria and well family members back in syria and it's just it's an incredible performance from her and a very sweet friendship between the two um cool. but then the bad guys are just so cartoonish <laughs> you know All they're right. just these absolute irredeemable monsters who drink too much and just say horrible things yeah and you think well maybe that is it but also it feels like the way i imagine a racist would be yeah yeah. <laughs> and, yeah yeah and it's not like insidious quietly happening amongst people no that's think the thing yes that's the real problem when it's when it's like your mate who you think is completely sound and normal of mind yeah and then they say something and you're like what sorry what <laughs> yeah that's yes that's definitely the way in which i've experienced racist but maybe that's a privilege that yeah. i've had according to my class that racism yeah, is at maybe. least more insidious than it might otherwise be but maybe that's a condescending attitude. It, but it's a lot easier, though, to be like, we can probably all get a bit more against, you know, rally against the like yeah. EDL white skinhead type of racist. That's yes. easy to be like, that's no, that's bad. Yeah. But it's a lot more subtle. The problem is it's when, when it's all your friends who are like, oh, yeah, no, 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 I'd never I'd never vote yeah. for a party that was pushing. I'd never vote for 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 brexit party or whatever and then quietly they do in their own time because they're yeah. like but secretly i do love racism <laughs> uh, it's like well it's, it's but they'll, the, never, um, they'll never admit it and they'll never say it and they're just or it's the like, sort of moderates who say oh i would never vote for edl or bnp or ukip or anything like that but yeah. i do wish the tories were a bit stronger stronger on, on boats yeah a bit stronger on boats i'm a bit worried about the just boats. my backyard is just my garden's full of boats i have just a house full of boats <laughs> I own the English Channel. And... <laughs> I'm Jonathan English. <laughs> Jonathan English. Do you go by Johnny? No, never. Not since. No. 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 Don't want to be associated. Yeah, mm. it's a shame. But there you go. There you go. There you go. It's a good film. You probably know exactly what you're going to get from it. But it is nevertheless just as sweet and affecting and funny as you would hope a Ken Loach movie to be. It's just, again, once again, there's not very much nuance. You know what you're going to get. It is like a long-form Guardian article to some extent. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Stars? Babies? Four babies. Four you know? babies. I, I do really like it, but I can't Fair imagine enough. happily sitting down to watch it again. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I'm not sure where I'm, I'm going to... Mm. I find it hard. If I'm going to sit down and watch a film, I probably want to have a nice time. Well, that's the thing. That's what I think... You know, that's why you sort of try and tell... You know, migrant stories and immigrant narratives, which first of all, you should ideally be handing over to people with that experience. Mm. You try and tell those stories in fantastical ways that people are going to actually want to engage with. Mm. You know, just wrapping the pill in sugar. Yeah. There's no sugar. Well, there's a bit of sugar. It's still a very funny effect. There's a little bit of sugar. There's a little sugar on there. Take a little sugar on it, Paul. Well, look, shall we get out of the UK? 
Yeah. I'll I'll pack Jap- bags. Let's have a Japanese film. Yeah. Just to finish on. <gasps> is this our last film? This is our last film. It's flown by uh, when I don't have yeah. notes. <laughs> <laughs> flown by when you're not reading a 7,000 word essay to me. <laughs> I still prefer that. <laughs> um, this is love. I think you not having notes has really opened the door for us to just rant about stuff a lot more. <laughs> it has, to be fair. Which has <laughs> no, been... I think that's what people want. <laughs> I think it's what the people want. And write in people if that is actually what you want. And we'll, we'll do more of that. <laughs> we um, get angry when Paul doesn't have notes. <laughs> I still get angry, but it's stru- structured Structured anger. anger. <laughs> and it's just anger about films. <laughs> Anywho. Love Life. Love Life. Love Life, the new film by Koji Fukada. Mm-hmm. Um, who I think this might be my first one of his films I've seen. Yes, I believe it is. Nevertheless, it is a yeah Japanese uh, drama film uh, about a woman named Teiko, who mm-hmm. is living with her husband, Jiro. Um, and she ha- they have a child together. Um and then early on, something really disrupts their life, um, which uh, and then another thing that happens is that the father of the son, um, Park, comes back and suddenly everything is sort of thrown up into the air. And she has okay. to deal with quite a lot of new elements in her life. It's a bit tricky because early on, something very dramatic happens, but you don't necessarily want to spoil it. Okay. So it's hard to talk openly. Sure. About the uh, the plot. So, yeah, there's... I, I really enjoy this. There is a sort of Coriander-esque, and it's a shame to compare it to Coriander, but with, you know, modern Japanese film, I think it's always going <laughs> to come back there. There's a Coriander-esque sort of lightness to the whole thing, even when it's dealing with some very heavy topics. Mm-hmm. You know, it's getting into some really serious things and some big things uh, around uh, grief and purpose and love and responsibility. Um but it's confronting them in such a way that still feels very driven by warmth between characters mm. and an overall sort of sense of... It's very poignant, I think. It's a very poignant film. Um, mm. And it's, dri- it's driven by that sentimentality, I think, is what I was getting at. It's driven by the sense that things are ultimately going to go towards things that are life-affirming or conf- confrontational. You know, there's very much yeah. a path that we're following here. But in this kind of um, Hamaguchi kind of way... There is a bit of uncertainty as to where exactly we might be going with some of these plot points and some really unpredictable sort of plot elements thrown in with characters making very rash and long-reaching decisions quite suddenly. So, yeah, I liked it a lot. It's a lot about happenstance. It's a lot about um, the lives that we're sort of in and what we owe to previous lives that we have left. Um, And it's a lot about love and the nature of it, how it affects people that we once were with, um how it affects people who are not in our lives anymore yeah it's it's a very sweet natured film but it's also one that really invokes its little setting you know you get a good sense of her apartment and the surrounding area you get a sense of a life which i always Mm. enjoy in these kinds of things um yeah it was very good i give it four babies four babies four babies how many stars though i don't know why you're talking about babies what a ridiculous system i know two stars (laughs) Stars, stars are worth a lot more than babies. <laughs> oh dear. It's two babies to a star. <laughs> That's the ratio. That's the current exchange rate. And I uh, don't think that Ken Loach hasn't got something to say about that. <laughs> it's actually, it's a little tricky to find things to say about Love Life. So it is a little insubstantial, perhaps. Mm. But nevertheless, it's, it's not as profound as um, other Japanese films of the year. But nevertheless, it was a very 
pleasant watch, which sure. is unusual considering the sort of story that is being mm. told here. But it is, it is a pleasant watch that makes you feel like even the most severe of dramas, you know, can be put into a context that feels a part of just the way in which we all live our mm. lives in this world. Just a normal part of life. It's just a part of life. Stuff happens. Stuff happens all the and you're time. you're going to have to roll with it. Ugh. Hate doing it. Yeah. But why don't people listening roll on over to wherever they can find out more? Actually, before we do that, mm-hmm. uh, Jen saw two of the films that we've previously talked about. <gasps> I did. Yeah. I did. When I was down in London seeing my horrible friend. Horrible friend. <laughs> You had to go see the movie so you didn't have to talk to him for a bit. Yes. <laughs> Weeks of not seeing you and so we chose to spend our time together sitting in a dark, quiet room not talking to... No, that's a lie. So we quiet. did plenty of talking to each other too. <laughs> um, we... And an Auntie Donna. And an Auntie Donna. I went down to London because I, I don't live near London anymore. I went down I to London. Because I needed to see Auntie Donna. Because <laughs> I needed to see Auntie Donna with Paul. It's not on Auntie. It's a comedy group. You might not. Yeah. <laughs> in case oh, yeah. You didn't know. Yeah, it's a comedy group. <laughs> Google them immediately. Watch everything. <laughs> yeah. Um, we saw a show. And then Paul was like, hey, seeing as you're going to be here for a whole day on Saturday, why don't we go watch two of the best films of the year showing yeah. at the Prince Charles Cinema? Well, hey. Heck, yeah, that sounds great. Um, so we saw... Um, Asteroid City, yeah. followed by Past Lives, and Correct. I uh, rated them both very highly. Yeah. Enjoyed them both very much. Um, yeah, excellent. Uh, I haven't seen that many Wes Andersons, I guess. Hmm. I've seen probably, you know, he's made quite a lot of films. He has so. made a lot of films. <laughs> I've seen a bunch of them, but not all of them. Right. And I very much enjoyed Asteroid City. I thought it was very charming, a lot of fun. Yeah. His style's just lovely. And Isn't I just, it? I mean, I love a really like, enclosed location setting for anything and just the little last i just that loved that little town yeah everything about it was so beautiful Mm. and the whole story was fun and yeah i had a great time with that a lot of fun (laughs) and then past lives was lovely and i it was funny because it starts and you're like okay yeah this is nice i'm having a nice time this is a nice film and then by the end the end i was just like that was just so lovely yeah the whole thing was so lovely and it's funny because about half an hour in i was like about on balance like, yeah this is nice but asteroid city was a lot more fun yeah. and then at the end i'm just like it's so nice yeah i love it so much um so yeah just watch it it's just so good it's just it's hard to describe it without yeah. just watch it everyone's yeah. there's like three characters in it and they're all amazing <laughs> it's just super charming and i don't know how it managed to do it what it did but it was great yeah it really does weave a whole world between the mm. three of them of just yeah this complex relationship that they've developed with each other. Yeah. Mm. Some great ca- charisma and, mm. yeah. And a lot of unyong. And a lot of unyong. Mm. Mm. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, so I enjoyed them both very much. I'd give them both... How many babies? Ten babies. Ten babies each? Ten babies each. Wow. Mm-hmm. That's really blown my baby scale out of the water. <laughs> <laughs> God, he really didn't think much of this one. None of them made it even halfway past the number of babies it's possible to get. (laughs) Maximum babies. Maximum Um, babies for Asteroid City. Maximum babies. Um, (laughs) Hooray. Hooray. And yes, let us wrap up. Let's wrap up. Um, No five stars this No five stars. Except for Asteroid City and Past Life. They're old, so, you know. They're definitely Throw them in there. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, um, maybe next month, or maybe in the LFF. Ah, London Film Festival, for those not mm-hmm. in the know. 
Paul... Party Donna, for those that don't know. <laughs> Paul's favourite time of the year is just about to start, where we lose contact with him for about two weeks yes. straight as he just watches films non-stop at oh London Film Festival. Help me. Yeah, you say it, but you love it. <laughs> You're absolute Actually, masochist. Much less of a leader. It's over a much shorter time period. Uh, Critics screenings only opened last week. Usually, has a two-week lead-in. Mm. So, and I haven't seen. I've only seen three so far. Okay. So yeah, the festival starts tomorrow, Wednesday the fourth, and runs till Sunday the fifteenth. Yeah. Um, and then it's over. So it's a week and a half. Week and a half. A week and a half. Let's see whether you get you get shingles again this time, Paul. Hope Fingers so. crossed. Eek. <laughs> Eek. <laughs> uh, um, if you would like to send Paul messages of condolences <laughs> or <laughs> to wish him strength during this trying time, it helps you a lot. can <laughs> you can email us at filmcriticpodcast at gmail dot com. That's how that works. Yes. Yeah. Um, this, of course, was Jen and the Film Critic, a Screen Mayhem podcast. And our names, I've done everything back to front, I feel, this time. And my <laughs> name was Jen Blundell, and with me was my film critic, Paul Salt. Say goodbye, Paul. I was Pauling without wings, without these notes. And Yeah, I think we did okay. Yeah, we did okay. Don't buy GameStop. <laughs> Don't do it, folks. To find out, what's, to find out what stocks you should uh, sign up to, go join the Roll Plus Heart Patreon. Yeah, join. Follow me on TikTok, and I'll tell you what stocks you should buy. Don't do that. That was a trick. Yeah. <laughs> you fell for it. And now I own all of you. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, that's it. Yeah. If you do want to follow us on some sort of social media, you can go to at Screen Mayhem on Twitter. Yeah. There's that. Do it and stuff. You'll get, stock you tips. get more than just you get more than just Jen and the film critic. You get other stuff too. Yeah. Stock so, tips. There's no stock tips. Listen, no. There's no stock tips. If they'd give you stock tips, just ignore them. <laughs> They're being silly. They're being silly. <laughs> Don't buy into it. Don't buy into it. Don't buy into it. Goodbye. Bye, everyone. Bye. Bye-bye. She's just an evil nun. She's looking for some fun with a guy like you. Evil nun. She's just an evil nun. She likes walking in the sun with a guy like you because she's possessed your body. Evil nun. Oh, just an evil nun. She likes a nice ice bun. From the shop on the corner, which she'll eat with your mouth because she's possessed your body, evil nun. She's just an evil nun. Oh, what can be done for this evil, evil nun?